0: Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins and my co-hosts are Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper mirison Bowie. Hello, Barney. In this episode, we are joined all the way from his native New York City by Miles Marshall-Lewis. Hi, Miles. Hey there, Barney. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Great to see you. We're going to be talking about Bob Marley and Wynton Marsalis, but our main focus is on the... California rapper Kendrick Lamar. And that's because Miles has just published Promise That You Will Sing About Me, a book about the power and poetry of Kendrick's four extraordinary albums. Miles, you're steeped in hip hop, but also in jazz and R&B. Growing up in the Bronx, what were your formative musical experiences?
1: That's a good question. Uh, I suppose both of my parents were really into the greatest music of the 70s, but my father in particular was a big fan of Earth, Wind, and Fire, uh, Miles Davis, who was going through his electric period at the time, Marvin Gaye, the Motown stuff, definitely. My father, again, was sort of a gopher for the Temptations as a teenager in the 1960s. (laughs) I had very young parents, uh, which was par for the course at the time, so... When I was born, my mom was 19, my dad was 20, so their 20s took place during my Wonder years, and I'd be schlepped to parties of their friends and peers, and Stevie Wonder would be playing in the background, and Marvin Gaye and Earth, Wind and & Fire, and uh, you know, all the all the huge greats of that era. So uh, those were sort of my formative uh, musical background. That was the soup I was swimming in. And then in the 1980s, I discovered hip-hop, where really truthfully i grew up in the south bronx and so i discovered hip-hop in the 1970s because there was a lot of breakdancing and djing in the parks uh, across the street from my grandmother's house and stuff like that and uh, i was listening to djs whose names i couldn't remember at the time but it turns out that they were influential djs like the late cool dj aj who was Mm -hmm. curtis blow's dj for a great period of time. And so I was I was listening to that. And of course, when Rapper's Delight came out, I loved it. I was eight years old, probably. And on and on from there, my parents weren't really into hip hop, although they were young enough to be. But uh, I loved all that stuff. The Breaks by Curtis Blow, and Africa Bambada's Planet Rock, and all that came out when I was in junior high school, high school. Those are the musical sounds of the moment.
2: Did you identify with hip-hop partly because of its local proximity, the fact that you you were brought up and where hip-hop was born to all intents and purposes?
1: I do think so. I do think so. I mean, I was used to DJs using the music of other people because that's mm-hmm. what DJs do. So when these guys from New Jersey were rapping over Chic's Good Times, <laughs> it made sense to me because uh, when I went to stuff in the parks, St. Mary's Park, for example, across the street from where my grandmother lived again, on Caldwell Avenue and what, 149th street, maybe in the Bronx. I was just used to that, you know, to guys getting on the microphone and doing what they do. And uh, the music being so deafening from across the street that I couldn't watch television anymore. And (laughs) uh, my (laughs) uncle would just take me outside and join in the fun outside. So, but yeah, I mean, I I love this stuff though. I mean, it was just, it was fun to me. It was, it was my music. It made sense to me. Uh, Naturally all the adults felt that it was a fad, and it would go away. And <laughs> they didn't treat it very seriously, and we went through that whole thing that they, I'm sure, also went through with rock and roll twenty years prior.
0: Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Was there a moment, Miles, when you thought you might like to write about that music or music in general? Uh, wow. I well,
1: certainly in college, um, I think that I had uh, inclinations to become a writer in high school. I was writing. I started a short story and it was, uh, sci-fi inspired. I was a big, uh, Isaac Asimov fan and, uh, a fan of other science fiction. Um, Robert Heinlein, I believe is the gentleman's name, uh, mm-hmm. wrote ring world. Maybe I was a fan of that Arthur C. Clarke. I was a fan of childhoods End. I didn't read 2001 at the time, but he wrote other things and short stories as well that were collected. And, uh, So that was sort of my stuff. Comic books definitely led me to science fiction directly. And music really didn't become on my mind until college. I was definitely reading the Rolling Stones of my father that were around. a Rolling Stone magazine and the Village Voice here in New York. My dad would pick it up for free every week. And I was tracking their hip-hop criticism because they were really the only ones writing seriously about Hip hop at the time. Yeah. So I was familiar with the bylines of Nelson George and Greg Tate since I was like a teenager. And reading Nelson George's books, uh, The Death of the Rhythm and Blues in particular, struck me when I was in high school. And I was aware that he was writing screenplays as well, stuff like CB4 starring uh, Chris Rock, which was like a hip hop parody, a hip hop spinal tap, if you will. (laughs) And, uh, It was, you know, funny to me. Uh, It was funny to the people who understood it at the time, which tended to be college age people who were like listening to N.W.A. and that type of stuff that they were spoofing. So uh, and I I had journals as well since the age of 15. Let's say I have journals that span back to 1986. So in a way, uh, it's like a real time documentation of most of my life at this point. Not that I'm 50 years old. I've written about my life and times since I was 15. So that sharpened my writing, certainly. And I would do my own private record reviews of things that I was buying, new music by Prince and, uh, and Run DMC and people like that since high school. So that said, my graduation year of college, Vibe magazine was founded. And it, was, I, it struck me immediately as like a, a black Rolling Stone and uh, I was like, "Wow, that would be the perfect job yeah, yeah. if I could get in with these guys." The Source magazine already existed, but yeah. I didn't buy the Source at the time. I, I was a later a Source writer and a Source reader, and I uh, appreciated definitely their contributions uh, as a hip hop bible. But uh, at the time, it just seemed like uh, the vibe, especially with the photography, was uh, obviously heavily like Richard Avedon influence with the mm-hmm. cover photographs and stuff, and uh, It was really, you know, I was aware of Jan Winner and the history of Rolling Stone. And I was like, wow, this, especially the size of it as well. I was like, Mm -hmm. yeah, this is clearly a black Rolling Stone, a hip hop Rolling Stone I want in. Uh And uh, I interned there immediately after graduating college. And six years later, they made me the music editor.
0: So what was the first piece you wrote for Vibe? Uh, I think for vibe, it was probably
1: a record review. It was probably a record of the Jungle Brothers who were okay. trying to yeah, make yeah. come back. You know, with a, wow, I don't even remember the name of that record anymore. Um, <laughs> it, it didn't. It didn't make them come back. You know? <laughs> <It didn't work. laughs> Unfortunately, you know. Uh, okay. But, uh, but but really, actually, ironically, since I wasn't reading the source initially. I've made a name for myself at the source mainly because I did a cover story on the breakup of a tribe called quest in 1998. Mm. And this is obviously before pre it was pre social media, pre Twitter. And you didn't know as a fan that A Tribe Called Quest had broken up until the Source magazine hit the stands. And, of course, those uh, articles are done two months in advance. So it was sort of a secret that I was keeping under my hat. (laughs) Uh, Myself and everyone on staff uh, were not allowed to say anything until the magazine dropped. And once it did, then uh, radio stations picked it up. Hip-hop radio stations were like, you know, have you heard the news? Uh, Q-Tip has disbanded the group and blah, blah, blah. Mm. So uh, that was a big deal. Uh, That was my first uh, major byline for the source. Uh, I think prior to that, probably my first piece for them, period, was about uh, DJ Polo. Uh, He was the DJ for Cool G Rap, and I think he maybe had a solo album or something. I maybe did an interview with him in the same issue as an interview with Grand Poobah, who uh, was previously from Brand Nubian and had maybe his second or third solo album coming out. So... I built my way up to the tribe moment, but it didn't take long.
3: <laughs> Wasn't your first piece in Rolling Stone, your first Rolling Stone review, a review of Erica Badu? Yes, you that, that in, is actually. The Kendrick it, book. And she hated it.
1: <laughs> she did, yeah. <laughs> I was so happy to show it to her. You know, I had met her through a mutual friend. Uh, there was My best friend had a roommate from Texas, and the roommate from Texas knew Erica from just growing up in Texas, right? Mm. They were both from uh, Dallas. And so Erica lived in Fort Greene, Brooklyn and was just hanging out and we were aware she had a record deal and felt that she would probably blow, you know, but um, we had no way of knowing lots of people get record deals. So she would just be hanging out. We'd be smoking weed, you know, like at house parties and stuff, you know, dancing in the mirror together. And uh, (laughs) and then her album came out. And so since I was aware of her already, uh, I pitched her to Rolling Stone because I knew that she had this record coming out. And I'm sure she was on their radar as well, being that they're Rolling Stone. But um, since I was maybe the first one to pitch it because I knew her personally and other people weren't aware that she was even signed, they told me, yeah, sure, go for it. And I reviewed it, and I liked the album. It wasn't a positive review because I knew her. But I showed her the record review, and I had somehow compared her to Diana Ross and Lady Sings the Blues portraying uh, Billie Holiday or something, saying basically that Diana, she's in this biopic of Billie Holiday, but what you're seeing is Diana. You know, like you can't really get it off your mind. It's Mm. Diana. And Erica may sound like Billie Holiday, but it, it doesn't go very far, the comparison, because what you're getting is Erica. And she didn't see it that way. <laughs> she just, uh, <laughs> <laughs> she saw the comparison and she was like, well, this sucks. And I was like, okay, well, uh, okay.
3: I mean, you know, without having read and hastily, the hastily covering up the byline. Oh, yeah.
2: Never show your friends, your write-ups
1: of their work. This
4: right. <laughs> never right. a good yeah, idea. For sure.
1: <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. I totally learned that over time. Like, you know, don't write about your friends. It's not a good idea. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I kind of, you know, off with crestfallen and uh that was that was that but yeah that was that was maybe 1997 so that was the beginning of my relationship with rolling stone magazine which uh which i was quite happy about just having grown up on it in in the the, the 80s and 70s did she ever talk to you again oh for sure she gave me a blur for the book actually (laughs) great she gave me a blur for the kendrick book yeah Mm -hmm. oh good good we're still in touch
4: You was gonna take me to see Wu Tang, baby. So I braided my hair. Well, yes, you did. Yeah, said you was gonna take me to see Wu Tang, baby. So I braided my hair.
0: Miles, one of the three pieces that we're featuring by you on the homepage is called The Sound in Our Veins, which Jasper added the other day, written for The Fader in 2017. And in it, you write about how you got into jazz via your parents' albums, um, some which you mentioned earlier. But you note that growing up in New York as a teenager in a golden age of hip-hop, jazz had plenty of competition. And in the piece, you go on to describe the way A Tribe Called Quest mashed jazz with hip hop and this is something i'm particularly interested in just exploring a bit in this episode particularly to do you know kendrick's to pimp a butterfly album do you think that tribe helped to turn rap fans onto jazz in some way or introduced them to jazz
1: i would think so at least a certain portion of us i mean i was familiar with a lot of that stuff already because I was sneaking into jazz clubs, actually, like the Bottom Line, which has been closed since. And I'd seen Miles Davis twice uh, in concert at Avery Fisher Hall at the JVC Jazz Festival before he passed away. And I knew other, you know, jazz players and had seen other, other jazz performances. But I think that hip hop uh, had a way of uh, making people do like deep dives. You know, like if you were really into it, and you heard uh, even NWA and the funk samples that they stole from uh, yeah. or borrowed from George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic uh, you know you would go seek that stuff out as a fan and the same for uh, Tribe I mean uh, certainly on the Low End Theory which had a anniversary recently maybe last week you would hear them mention Ron Carter on the bass and then mm-hmm. you sort of well who's Ron Carter mm-hmm. if you didn't know already yeah yeah yeah
5: and this one goes out to my man. Thanks a lot, for Ron Carter, on the base. Yes, my man Ron Carter is on the bass.
1: And uh, despite Google not existing at the time, you would at least go to your local record store and ask the guy, "Well, you know, we got any Ron Carter records? Or who is he?" And discover, uh, you know, his legacy as a jazz bassist. So I, I do think that there was that thing where you would sort of go down the
0: rabbit hole. You finish up the piece I just mentioned with Kendrick Lamar's twenty fifteen album to Pimp a Butterfly and with its guest appearances by the, the new jazz stars like Kamasi mm-hmm. Washington and so forth. We're so we're also featuring your rave review of that magnificent record. I mean mm-hmm. what was your what was your first, you know, awareness of of Kendrick, your first reaction to hearing Kendrick Lamar? I think it was really good Kid Mad City.
1: I mean, I had heard of him prior to that. Uh, I remember I I'd lived in Paris, right, uh from 2004 yes. to 2011. I was over there in my 30s and I had a slightly more distance relationship to hip hop music, the hip hop music of the time. Uh this uh, mainly I guess I was listening to probably Kanye and the occasional Jay-Z album and you know, I was I was dabbling. I, I wasn't so much of a fervent fan anymore. I wasn't at clubs dancing to the music uh you know i wasn't in my 20s anymore i I had a young family my kids were just born and so i was aware that kendrick was supposed to be this this young lion this big deal on the horizon but i didn't seek his music out really he was releasing mixtapes and even independent albums uh like the kendrick lamar ep and section 80 but i didn't play that stuff so when he released his first major studio album good kid mad city i was back in new york by then and working at ebony magazine on the digital side and it was my responsibility to know this stuff again uh, like the back of my head so i played it even though the era had passed where we were getting advanced music and i got to hear it before everyone else like that that's sort of over you know which is what i was used to in the 90s getting the music months before anybody could hear it but i played it on day one and i was uh obviously super impressed i mean it was, it was a great record it seemed like a throwback to the concept albums of old in terms of ready to die for example by biggie or or dr dre's the chronic or even snoop's doggy style like it just seemed like it hung together as a whole very intentionally it told a story you know it reminded me of those 1990s records that i loved because we were in the middle of, of shuffle culture in the ipod and and Albums had gone back to being a collection of singles, uh, and not quite filler on the side, but just sort of it wasn't so important anymore at that moment for albums to to hang together the way they used to, and so this album definitely did, and I appreciated that, and I appreciated Kendrick for that, and it continued along, you know, with the rest of his records. They all sort of have this this cohesive album statement flavor to them that that makes me uh, love his music.
0: Yeah. In the piece again I, that I mentioned earlier, you quote mm-hmm. from your own ebony. Cover story, interview with Kendrick from, um, from 2015. I think just like maybe six weeks after that album had come out, mm-hmm. you ask him about the jazz influences and he tells you, we listened to Miles and Coltrane. One of the main albums was a Love Supreme going into this record. The producers, they were telling me, man, you are a jazz musician. Without me even knowing the history of it, missing years of actually studying these guys, your cadence and how you put your songs together, you're doing it. So it's almost like he became a jazz musician by accident I mean I remember hearing that record for the first time as I'm sure my colleagues did and being just really blown away by it and these guys know a lot more about jazz than I do so I probably hand <laughs> this over to them but it was such a revelation <laughs> mm-hmm. to hear those strands I mean Jasper you, when you first heard Pimper Butterfly what, what was your because you, you knew about Kamasi Washington and
3: Yeah I I'd like right before that got really into Kamasi when, when he released the epic and was just like wow there's someone mm. releasing a three hour jazz album and it's popular and I was like what what's going on basically and I was really <laughs> excited by that because you know being a jazz musician and kind of it not being like the coolest thing growing up and then suddenly jazz is kind of cool again right and that was really exciting for me and then just yeah To Pimp Butterfly especially is where I really I mean I'd, I'd heard Good Kid Mad City but I mean I, I liked it but it hadn't like you know, grab me in the same way that To Butterfly then did. And it was, it's just, he's got this incredible lyricism, but that also translates to his flow and the way he rhymes and constructs stuff and the rhythms that he chooses. It's just very free and very clever at the same time. We
2: were talking about it in the office yesterday, Jasper and I were. You know, I have a a problem which relates to hip hop, to everything, is that I'm one of those people who doesn't really listen to words, which makes hip-hop mm. slightly problematic but i love the sound <laughs> sure. i love the sound of this record <laughs> <Slightly>. <laughs> but i love this i love the sound of this record and and, mm-hmm. and we sort of basically just when i came to the conclusion of what kendrick lamar really does he swings mm. his flow really really swings yeah
1: right yeah i mean i have a funny Kamasi washington story because the first time i ever listened to the epic i was in montreal for the first time i was visiting canada and uh i was at the airport on my way back to new York City. And I was listening to it, and I got to a song called The Rhythm Changes, uh, which I still jog to it in Central Park. It's like it's an amazing record, right? So I just couldn't so I couldn't advance to the rest of the record. I had to loop the rhythm changes, and I was just <laughs> sitting there listening to it over and over, and I missed my flight. Like evidently I was sitting, <laughs> I was sitting in the wrong area, and really I was just zoned out on this song, and they were like, you know. Miles Lewis, could you please come to gate 23? I was like, I wasn't hearing them, you know, and I was like, wow, people are not boarding, but uh, good. Maybe it's delayed or something. I just love the song. And then I figured out, well, maybe I should ask someone and took my headphones off finally. And was like, yeah, you know, where am I? Am I in the right place? They were like, you missed your like, yeah, it just took off, dude. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great story so i was like wow well so this song this album like this cat kamasi washington made me like miss my flight i had to spend the night in the airport and take the earliest like you know 7 yeah plane. yeah so i was kind of pissed off but it was my fault it was like well okay but you know the song was so beautiful i was like wow this is this is great But yeah, Kamasi and uh, Thundercat and, um, you know, all those those jazz cats, uh, they lent uh, something to the album that had not really been heard in hip hop in a long time in terms of the fusion of uh, of jazz and hip hop. I mean, the Tribe did their thing in their day, but uh, it, it's sort of a, a mashup, as I'd said, that had been um, put on the on the side. I mean, uh, Guru from gangstar mm-hmm. had created those great records yeah, with yeah. jasmine, Taz, jasmine Taz. Mm-hmm. uh sure in, in the 1990s but kendrick just put his own spin on it that was that was uniquely refreshing and uh he would later win the pulitzer prize for the damn album but as far as yeah. i'm concerned to pimp a butterfly could also yeah. ha, could have won it first because it was it was so unique and he it's not an album that he had to make that wasn't his style you know uh Certainly everyone was expecting Good Kid Ned City Part 2, and he could have wrote that out for several more albums, like someone like The Game, for example, would have done or had done in terms of being a West Coast MC in that idiom, you know, in that style. And no, it it worked. I mean, they they killed it. Robert Glasper and, you know, Mm. Layla Hathaway, I guess, is on that record, too. Yeah. You know, all the different voices and players on it. They did their thing. Flying Lotus. It It was a dope record. And, you know, they... They pushed the envelope, and and they were rewarded for it. You know, you know hip hop listeners went on the ride, and it was during an era where rappers weren't taking as many chances, and, and certainly we're still in that era, in my opinion. So, uh, Tim Pimper Butterfly, uh, yeah, it, it it did its thing. You know, it, mission accomplished
5: how much a going really costs? the question is detrimental paralyze my thoughts parasites in my stomach keep me woke got feeling see how i once i park this luxury car big, 6 do you my cell is be dumb 20 years ago can't predict
3: i think what's what's crucial about the sound stuff of stuff. it is is that it is a bunch of relatively young jazz musicians and it's not you know he's not sampling them he's actually working with them across different and you know because i mean flying lotus is more of a producer, but still kind of a jazz musician. Obviously he's, he's Alice mm-hmm. Coltrane's nephew right. or grandnephew or some, you know, but there is this overlap. And I think that someone like Thundercat who, when he makes his solo records, they're kind of jazz records, but they're kind of also hip hop records without very much rapping as well. It's kind of, there is, there is all of this give and take between those scenes because they are scenes. And I think that's for me, mm-hmm. what makes it alive
1: Sure. I mean, I think going back to Tribe introducing hip hop listeners to jazz, I think that uh, it's great that these uh, cats were on to Pimp a Butterfly to make listeners dive into their records if they hadn't already. You know, I remember in the 1990s, jazz players like Joshua Redman and Mm. um, James Carter were being touted as like, you know, the young lions of jazz. And now uh, they're 50 in their 50s you know yeah. they, they've outlived John Coltrane and you know different players of jazz who passed away young and uh they're not the young guys they're not the go-tos you know and there are new go-tos and certainly I guess uh, Kendrick and his producers were, were prescient in terms of tapping into uh to that new wave
3: I think it's interesting as well that in I don't know how where you are or how where jazz musicians in the states are of the the current London Jazz scene, musicians like Nubaya Garcia, which has kind of come up at a similar kind of time, a label called Jazz Refresh and stuff. Okay. Very, very local to London. No, no, I'm unfamiliar. I'm unfamiliar, but continue. They're really, I mean, there's a lot of great musicians part of that scene. And I think they probably would have looked, looked across the ocean and kind of seen this rise and been inspired by not. Not that it, I think it was actually contemporaneous. It wasn't kind of a, a trigger, but it was kind of something that was encouraging to that. I was just curious if you'd, if you'd heard of them, but if not, I would definitely recommend that you check them out because there's some really great playing being done okay.
1: here. Yeah, no, I'll listen to that stuff. I haven't heard it. I remember Erica Badu shortly after her debut album, Baduism, released a live album, like probably six months later or, or thereabouts. And I'd seen her perform definitely in people's living rooms. Uh, as I mentioned, I, I knew I had a personal acquaintance with her, but when I saw her live shows later, people were really excited to check her out. And she opens that live album, and the band is playing like "So What" from Miles Davis is "Kind of Blue." Hmm. They're riffing on it, and if you know the song, then you know the song, you know. If you don't, then it's just Erica sort of slinking out on stage with her <laughs> incense burning and, and all that. <laughs> but it's like, but if, if you know the song, it's like, wow, you know, she's she's bringing Miles Davis. Into the neo soul uh, situation. And I think a lot of those neo soulers were, were listening to jazz as well as to uh, yeah. Stevie Wonder and, um, sure. you know, just the old Marvin Gaye stuff, like the old soul music of the 70s. You know, being that you guys are abroad, uh, I saw uh, D'Angelo at the Jazz Cafe uh, mm-hmm. during his first performance in the UK that was, I guess, later released as a live record, D'Angelo at the Jazz Cafe. He did maybe two nights there, Camden Town, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah and, yeah, uh, yeah. and I saw him there, and that was a great show. But he, you know, he's also a student. They were all sort of listening to jazz, the Neo Soul Cats, and incorporating it occasionally into their music, you know, alongside the soul that they were sort of bringing back to R&B. Is
2: this something to do with their parents' record collections? I mean, in in a way, the 90s through to now is probably the first generation of musicians whose parents' record collections probably had some pretty serious impact on them. And so I guess mm-hmm. a lot of these people, hip-hop artists, maybe, but their dads, their mums, and their dads had Miles Davis records, had John Coltrane records in their record collection. Certainly.
1: And mm-hmm. that's, that yeah, stuff no, certainly. Them. Yeah, yeah, no, I 100% agree. I mean, uh, back in the day when D'Angelo and Erykah Badu in particular uh, didn't have That many songs to perform live Mm -hmm. because they were both on their first albums. They would cover things like uh, the Ohio players' "Sweet Sticky Thing," uh, you know, different singles from or songs from Shaka Khan and Marvin Gaye. Uh, I don't know if D'Angelo ever did Marvin Gaye. Frank. No, no, no! They did, they did, because I think they did a duet. Your precious, your precious love, actually, specifically <laughs> D'Angelo and Erica uh, did a cover of uh, Your Precious Love, the Marvin Gaye, Tammy Terrell. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, they were sort of covering the songs that would put you in the mind of what they were trying to sort of sure. resurrect, you know, sure. or, or replicate. And the radio is not to be underestimated either. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the stuff that was on the radio uh, when they were in their youth. And so um just like uh hip hop artists were sampling different records to sure. give you the vibe of, mm-hmm. of what they were inspired by, as R and B singers they were doing cover versions of the songs from from the artists who were there.
0: Miles, what was the inception for Promise That You Will Sing About Me? Your incredibly dense and informative and and exciting book uh, about Kendrick. Just has got some incredible illustrations in, and it's got like running the thoughts from critics like Greg Tate and Ann Powers and many others. So it's it's not a kind of orthodox text, which I really like. But I mean, I'm, I, I'm learning a lot about about Kendrick Lamar from reading it. Uh, what, so what was where did you start thinking about doing a book on him?
1: Right. Well, I'd interviewed him in 2015, and it wasn't until he won the Pulitzer Prize that I realized that it would be a good time to do something on him, since at the time there were no pre-existing books. This is the second biography of Kendrick Lamar at this point that's out now. But I didn't want to take the traditional approach where you learn his life, uh, you know, from chapter one to chapter whatever. It's like a chronological, biographical story, and then in the center there are a bunch of pictures. I didn't want to take the traditional approach because I felt that creatively Kendrick was such a such an innovator that uh, I wanted to make a book that was kind of innovative in its own way, you know. Makes so um, I I looked to D- Jay Z's Decoded, honestly. Uh, Jay Z's memoir, Decoded, uh, which came out uh, several years ago, which was co-written or ghost-written, if you will, by Dr- Dream Hampton, uh, colleague of mine. Excellent book, and uh, I, I definitely recommend it. But it, it also has a bunch of illustrations, and the, the paper is glossy, and uh, you know the publisher put a lot of money into into making that a really beautiful book, uh, a keepsake in its own right. Aside from even the prose. <laughs> I think that my running commentary on the side from uh, people like ta Coates and Alicia Garza, who's a co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, that came from um, the 48 Laws of Power, which I noticed um, when I read it uh, many, many years ago, uh, had sort of quotes about power from different figures in, in history. Uh, I thought that that was that was pretty cool, the way they did that. And mm-hmm. uh And, you know, set off in the margins. Uh, So, you know, all these ideas sort of came to me. There's even, um, I believe, a book called The Rap Yearbook. I believe the author's name is Shea Serrano. I read that and he had sort of um, boxed off quotes from uh, like a bunch of different writers and and music critics uh, at the bottom of the page. Uh, commenting on the greatest uh, rap songs of each year, because that was sort of the concept of, of the rap yearbook, that year by year, what was the best song of that year? And that's also an excellent book. But um, but uh, a mishmash of these ideas, you know, I figured could make a, a really a cool book that would be just sort of innovative and different uh, the way that Kendrick himself is innovative and different. And it allowed me some freedom, you know, because uh, I could have Ta-Nehisi Coates and Greg Tate, you know, do some of the heavy lifting while I am free to sort of riff, you know, as a storyteller, you know, explaining uh, autobiographically, you know, how I relate to Kendrick and understand him from uh, being from the Bronx. And he's from Compton. And those are both sort of hard scrabble areas, you know, because I didn't want it to veer into let's say wikipedia territory where i'm just sort of listing his accomplishments and and hitting the points of you know this is what happened in his life uh because that gets really rote and kind of boring yes so there are there are a lot of uh autobiographical elements uh and incidentally it's funny uh hanif uh, abdu is uh, a a music writer here in the states who and also a poet who won a macarthur grant yesterday uh they uh released the list of the macarthur grant genius fellowships yesterday and he received one um which is like a, a free six hundred thousand dollars to each one of them to do what with they, with they will <laughs> but uh but he was awarded the prize for mixing i guess autobiography with with social and racial commentary in his music criticism and uh and i was i was proud that he won and i'm a fan of his writing but i was like wow that's that's kind of what we all do <laughs> what writers like me myself and Michael A. Gonzalez and Nelson George and Joan yeah. Morgan. And, uh, you know, like we've, that's sort of, that's what we've been doing, you know, yes. um, that's sort yeah. of, uh, you know, a style that's, that's existed for a while. And, um, and so I'm glad that it, it got recognition from the, the MacArthur fellowship people, but that is definitely the style that I had adopted, uh, for, uh, promise that you will sing about me.
3: Uh-huh. yeah i mean i love the book i i really like the way that you can jump from you know you, you'll analyze some lyrics in depth like when you're analyzing his early stuff as Dot and you're kind of going well this was pretty basic but you can see where he was trying to get to and then you can you can look back at it and figure out oh this is what led to that and that's that's great. And then you but you're also kind of telling a biographical story of him and an autobiographical story as you were saying. It just combines all these different strands in a way that I find really compelling. And I've really been enjoying it. Plus the commentary, it's great because it's not just footnotes. It's it's actually, you know, taking up half the page and you're kind of giving whoever is quoted enough space to actually say something and riff on what you're saying or you're riffing on what they're saying, and it's just a great Way of, of presenting that as well, plus the illustration to barney mentioned. Yeah, which is great.
0: Yeah, and Jason King is another Thank name you. I saw there. Jay, Jason yeah. actually came into the Rock's Back Pages office a few years ago when he was doing his Queen and Freddie Mercury research. So he was pulled okay. up, wow. pouring through old <laughs> old seventies. Uh, Matt cool. interviews with Queen and Freddie. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Probably some of those sitting behind Mark right now.
1: <laughs> no, Jason, he's very thorough, so that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> that, that's fantastic. Yeah. you know. Jason, yeah. he uh, is uh, head of uh, the Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music yeah. here in New York City, which is affiliated with New York University. Yeah. and uh, He brought me in a few years ago, uh, pre-COVID, to teach a class on Kendrick uh, Lamar at the Clive Davis Institute. Cool. And so I'm indebted to him for that. But yeah, I mean, to your point, Kendrick, he has his own universe. You know, like if you think about Quentin Tarantino movies, for example, yeah. mm-hmm. there's sort of a Easter egg in maybe most of uh, his movies where people are like smoking red apple cigarettes, I believe it is. You know, and it's, it's only like if you're a Tarantino fan that you know that... Uh, you know, yeah. when whatever character is putting his cigarette box down that it's red, a non-existent cigarette brand, yeah. you know, it makes like a thread through Tarantino's work. You know, like if you listen to, as you said, uh, uh, K. Dot's mixtapes, you see concepts and characters that appear later yeah. in his later records. Uh, you know, it's sort of like uh, the Marvel Universe or something <laughs> where like uh, there's a there's a chronology of, of things uh, and characters and, mm. and uh and you know, there's a there's a connection between
5: things. Check it out. I used to wanna rap like Jay-Z until I finally realized that Jay wasn't me. I- took my time to jot down every line that's a quotable critics say i don't be killing this shit but i know i do because i used to practice early morning hands and after school i'm working on my hooks my nigga i ain't trying to battle you but even if i did i guarantee i overshadow you like a fucked up taper that turned to a bowl cut i'm a close cut to common and gucci man
3: another thing that i really like about it is that it's not a hagiographic book right it's not like you're not just being praising of him and you've got extensive sections where you kind of question the elements of misogynoir in his music sexism and 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 For sure. potentially like stuff where when it, after after certain shootings he kind of wasn't what he said maybe didn't help because it inflamed certain tendencies from from the right to kind of blame violence towards black americans on other black americans it's mm-hmm. not a helpful thing to kind of contribute to that but you managed to be critical of him through that while still being you know aware of that he's someone and i think it's important as well because he's still alive right and he's still right. growing as an artist and in his political awareness as well that it's yeah it's it's great i mean i the, the sections where you talk about him you, you write like Black Panther didn't coin the famous phrase "With great power comes great responsibility." That was Spider Man, but it's a Max of <laughs> Kendrick takes st- seriously to heart. So Pimper Butterfly <laughs> comments several times on the conflict of misusing influence, the resentment over abusing power. So obviously, it's a theme in his music, but he still has a tendency to do that sometimes. And and I think that the fact that you just kind of say that and deconstruct that is is great. No,
1: thank mm-hmm. you. I, I really mm-hmm. appreciate that. I mean, it's, it's very it's vital to be. Critical. I mean, that's sort of our job, you
3: know, like it's a biography. <laughs> yeah. And
1: so obviously I cared enough about him as an artist to write about him and to to want put, to put a book out on him, you know, so I want to celebrate him. But at the same time, certainly, uh, you know, his his output hasn't been uh, completely flawless in terms of uh, the sexism and the noir. And, uh, I, I, yeah, I would have been remiss not to mention those
5: things. When our pride was low, looking at the world like, where do we go? Nigga, and we hate Pope Paul, when the killer's dead in the street for sure. Nigga, I met the preacher's door. My knees getting weak and my gun might blow, but we gonna be all right.
0: Miles, the other piece of yours that we're featuring on the homepage page is a 2013 interview you did with Wynton Marsalis, which is sort of the mm. other end of the jazz spectrum, um, given how identified he is with sort of conservative music values. Right. What did you make of Wynton Marsalis?
1: He's a brilliant man. I mean, not that I expected it any less, I guess. But uh, he's just got this incredibly encyclopedic knowledge of, of jazz and love for the art form. Uh, You know, I had always taken uh, Umbridge at uh, the fact that he doesn't care for hip hop. Just how could you not get hip hop? Like, I don't, you know, just because they're not musicians in the jazz sense at all, doesn't mean that it's not worthwhile music or that you don't can't consider it music. So, you know, he's, he's sort of, uh, he's dying on this hill of hip hop is like not music. And, uh, and it wasn't a debate that we even, <laughs> we didn't get into it. Cause I, I just didn't want to go down that road. Uh, you know, there was, there was so much else to talk about <laughs> when I met him at uh jazz at Lincoln center, which is, um, you know, where like, he sort of, uh, he runs that organization here in New York at Columbus circle in Manhattan here. But, uh, but no, you know, of course I had seen his commentary in Ken Burns, uh, jazz, uh, the, the 10 episode, uh, documentary on jazz that exists and that I, I loved and was super thorough and he just he he knows his stuff. You know, there's there's a famous jazz ending. It goes duh, 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 duh. like I I asked him about that. Like where does that come from? And he was like, oh well so that was a Count Basie thing.
3: And that's a where, Basie like, thing. Yeah I was gonna right. say like
1: what Count Basie, you know, it was sort of like Count Basie Like I didn't right. know that. I mean I, I just <laughs> knew that I always heard it and um, I'm sure there are people who Threw it in their songs that like weren't you know that weren't jazz Count Basie compositions for that matter. It's just sort of become this recognized thing. But uh, you know, I could ask him like the most random question like that, and he he of course would know. You know, he, yeah, yeah. Um, he's he's a he's a steward of uh, of all things jazz, and and definitely knows what he's talking about. And um, you know, I was kind of more partial musically to his brother Branford. You know, yes. because Branford played with Sting, and I I those records were important to me as a teenager, uh, just as important as the hip hop stuff and the Prince stuff that I loved. Uh, I was into Dream of the Blue Turtles. The documentary Bring on the Night was one of the things that led me to, to move to Paris. It was like okay. between Bring on the Night and Under the Cherry Moon by Prince, um, which took place in Nice, uh, the south of France, yes. those were two of the, like, the first, I guess, my first exposure to, to France and to Paris okay, and right. to how beautiful it was. Uh, on top of, I guess, the writings of James Walden and stuff like that. But visually, sure. it was like, wow, that looks like a cool spot. Um, <laughs> like,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we've actually chosen a, an interview with Winston Marsalis okay. as the week's new audio. And Mark's going to tell us a bit about it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a
2: long one. It's an hour and a half. They're clearly friends. This thing that strikes you very early, that these are people who hang out to, with one another socially. Tony Sherman, who's who's a very good writer about... Very much about the music. That's Tony Sherman's angle. You know, it's, it's less storytelling. Uh, it, it, we're not sure of the date whether it's 1996 or 1997. They actually say it's mm. 1996 in the interview, and Tony has written 1997 on the the cassette shell. He's asked about his impact on jazz and the current state of jazz which he thinks is actually kind of the healthiest it's been for some years. But he also talks about how albums of standards sell better than albums of original music. Um, he talks about his involvement in teaching and some of his protégés, some of the people, in fact, Marshall, you just mentioned. Difficulty of keeping bands together, where he's at in his ambitions. And he talks about study. he's studying composition. And this keeps recurring throughout the interview is for him, the importance of constantly learning and relearning and investigating mm. different areas. Jasper, do you want to play the training
4: clip?
5: You know, they say I went to Juilliard, but I didn't go. I only went for a year. Yeah. So you, you can only go so far with a certain level of training. Yeah then you have to get more training, more technology. Now, a lot you can figure out yourself, because music is a spiritual thing. I mean, it comes to you. Yeah. And you can use your own intelligence, your own study yeah. to figure out certain things. But as you get older, you just at certain points, you have to revisit things, maybe things that you've studied already. and Well, in my case, a lot of I haven't studied, yeah. to really try to focus in on it. And to even to develop your first your talent to a, to a higher level and if you don't seek out that education and that that, that if you don't seek the education yeah. out if you don't place yourself in a position to get that information then your talent will never really be yeah. it's certain stages and levels you can't ascend to.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, which is interesting. Um, he also talks about his impact as a spokesman. We'll play a clip about that at the end of the podcast. He talks extensively about the Lincoln Centre jazz programme that he was so, so involved in and is still involved in. It's mm-hmm. clearly just, it's been a huge thing for him. It's, it's allowed him to write, perform, teach, do all kinds of things about jazz let's play the, um, the being attacked he also he's asked about being attacked and the thing is i think he slightly deflects the question because i think sherman may have been asking him about his some of his more contentious statements about jazz and he turns it into a conversation about something else quite neatly so let's have a listen to this
5: vilified almost exclusively for 10 years, you know, 11, 12 years, people just attacked me constantly, but the public would still come out and support that music. People people have come out, you know, and they dig the music. And, that, you know, the reaction that I would get in 1984 is not that much different from the reaction I would get in 1994. People come out mm-hmm. and like it, you know, what we were doing. Mm-hmm. So, but it's different things to have an impact on your field, yeah. artistically, and have an impact on the people who who enjoy the music as you're
2: playing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he talks at length about the nature of composition and how improvisation can be the source of composition. Talks about his current projects. He clearly regrets that he's never really been part of the sort of the. Obvious jazz scenes of the thirties, forties and fifties where musicians would hang out together. That's kind of gone. You know, those those days are over.
3: Well, it's I think it's almost more that his that those days are, are different, that he wants there to be something that no longer exists. Yes. And because he wants that so badly, he can't really be part of the, the other things that are happening. Because they <laughs> contain things that he doesn't like. Some, yeah. He also so he, he, he
2: he talks about you know jam sessions are impossible these days because everyone plays too long. You know, you get someone gets a tenor in their mouth, you can't get it out out of their mouth for half an hour. You know. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, he talks about his luck of being surrounded by good people. He talks about his, his road manager, who I assume is still his road manager, who was turning him on to all kinds of music and stuff like that. And that's the road manager, for Christ's sake! I mean, it's, it's great. <laughs> and he talks about some of the turning points in his life. I mean, I I, hmm. I I I I liked listening to him. I liked the sound of him. I've got a real beef with him. I mean, uh, I I hated hmm. the Ken Burns jazz documentary. Wow! Uh, well, and I, and I, I know have... other
1: people have criticized it.
2: Yeah, I hate it because basically Stanley Couch and Wynton Marsalis were the people who determined that documentary's point of view. Now, I happen to love a lot Mm. of free jazz. I happen to love Archie Shepp. I happen to love Pharaoh Sanders. And these are people that Wynton routinely dismisses. He's been known to say that nothing good's come out of jazz since 1961 and stuff like that. You know, I mean, (laughs) uh, Mm. he's a reactionary. And this is a yeah. problem with Ken Burns' documentary making, that if Ken Burns finds someone who can provide him with the narrative that he needs to make the film, and if he chooses the wrong <laughs> sure. guy, you get the wrong movie. The, the movie that made his massive reputation was his American Civil, Civil War, War documentary. Yeah? Mm. Well, that mm. was really based on Shelby Foote, who is a Southern academic from the University of Mississippi, who's a Robert E. Lee apologist. You know, and mm. th- it it undermines the total work, and I think that 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 his jazz documentary is undermined by holding so so much to Winter Marsalis's pearls of wisdom. No, that's
1: that's interesting. Mm. I mean, I get that, and I've I've heard that actually before, and and that that's valid. I mean, I love the electric stuff. Of Miles Davis, yeah, uh, me too. I mean, when I when I was born, uh, that that was what Miles was doing, and that's yeah, what yeah. I thought jazz was to a large degree. Are you aware of the documentary Fire Music? No, Fire Music is it's just been released in the states, and so I imagine it will make its way to you. But it's it's a documentary about right. the free jazz movement. They right. focus on players like Don Cherry and Arnett Coleman, and yes, yes, Sun Ra certainly, and that is kind of where uh, Ken Burns jazz ends <laughs> you know, like it doesn't <laughs> yeah. explore any of that yeah. stuff yeah. Uh, to the degree that it, it should have certainly and it doesn't extend into the 1980s at all either with Absolutely. the great work of Grover Washington Jr. and and uh david sanborn and people like that like you know there's something to be said for that music mm-hmm. as well It doesn't end in 1971
2: miles have you ever read valerie wilmer's book as serious as your life it's a book about basically free jazz and it's absolutely no. sensational I, I can't recommend oh, really? it more highly it's just been reissued i think about last year or the year before last she was a, a photographer and writer in england working for Merseymaker, maker and Mm. She, she got stuck in New York and Ornette Coleman put her up in his loft for about six months. And he, she mm. just like just was swallowed up by this extraordinary scene. And it's, it's, it's dynamite, okay. dynamite piece of writing. Can't recommend
1: yeah, no, I'll pick that up. You know, mm. I'll pick that up. But uh, you know, to your point in terms of Winton, uh, sort of regretting that he, wasn't around uh, Mm -hmm. at the time where he could have improvised with the jazz greats. It reminds me of a recent interview that I've done with uh, Nas because he has a new album and he won his first Grammy at the, at the head of the year. And uh, it's, it's a cover story for Ebony magazine that's out now. And um, he has a similar reverence for the rap artists that are 20 years old. You know, like when he Mm. debuted people were calling him the second coming of Rakim. But whenever I mention I guess that era to him he really he he gets uh beatific and goes off about like Slick Rick and Kool Rap and Rakem and you know it's as if the quality of his work is uh sort of a monument to yeah. those rappers that he loved so much uh from the golden age of of hip hop that uh inspired him to become a rapper similarly to what Winton Sure, you know does uh <laughs> yeah you know with with his immense reverence for uh that like bebop era
3: yeah yeah i wonder what do you think Winton would make of to pimp a butterfly or what indeed he did make if he if he bothered to listen to it
1: i'm sure he wouldn't like it i'm sure <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm sure he'd think it was you know bollocks like I'm sure he would think <laughs> it was rubbish like nah you know I, I don't i don't imagine him really appreciating it unfortunately yeah
0: it's a pity. I think you're right. As a right. footnote to this, Tony Sherman, the interviewer in this audio interview, told me that he had the year before done this very, very long interview with Marcellus for what I think is quite a conservative American publication called American Heritage. Mm. <laughs> and and mm. it and he says it got Winter into a lot of hot water, quote unquote, because it was so reactionary in in its statements about how i don't know whether it was specifically hip-hop but but the way, like, American values were being undermined by, well, sort of all jazz after 1961. <laughs> <laughs> and so I've tracked that one down. We're going to have to add that to, to Rock's back pages. But, I mean, it's in, incredibly long. I only um, unearthed it this morning and haven't had a chance to read it. But, look, it's fascinating talking about those of so two two ends of the jazz spectrum. So, you know, thank and you. And they both me. won the Pulitzer
3: Prize for, for music. So well, that's, that's very, true. very, very true. rare. It's a funny thread, I think, you know. <laughs> It <laughs> yeah, was the first jazz album to win it yeah, and right. then then Kendrick was the first hip hop album to That's win amazing, it. That's amazing. It's kind it? of this it- parallel there.
1: Very true.
5: Chasing new worldly possessions, flesh-making, spirit-breaking, which one would you listen? The better part, the human heart, you love them or dissect them? Happiness or flashiness? how do you serve the question?
0: We should now turn our attention briefly at least to the week's featured artist which is Bob Marley not forgetting the Wailers of course because the Marley musical Get Up Stand Up opens this coming month in London so it seemed fitting to look back to particularly the London gigs that proved um, such a landmark moment in in Bob Marley's life and so we're featuring the Carl Dallas interview that Bob did just the day after the second Lyceum show in July uh-huh. 75 um, and it's, it's a pretty great Great piece, especially given that Carl was at this point a 44 year old writer who'd specialised almost entirely in folk music. But it's a, it's. I just wanted to quote a couple of things. So he interviews. He goes. It's, it's wonderful detail in here. Things that I've forgotten. So after the Lyceum show, he goes to this disco in Carnaby Street called Columbo's and and Bob Marley is like holding court and dancing and this lovely detail about the way he dances but Dallas says of him if superstardom consists of being elusive, evasive, incoherent unpunctual, enigmatic or undifficult then Marley is no superstar but if it has anything to do with that overworked word charisma with knowing what you're doing and not being diverted from the main object in view with a burning conviction and a dazzling talent united to communicate that Marley is possibly the greatest superstar to visit these shores since the days when Dylan conquered the concert halls of Britain, never looking back. I mean I remember. I mean I know you do Mark as well. Yeah, yeah. Not that either of us were at that Ly- Lyceum show I couldn't but, get a ticket. I couldn't right. get I wanted to couldn't get a ticket. It was so, absolutely mm, right sold out. Miles you probably know about so it produced this, you know, awesome live album. Sure. And sure and they they were just these legendary shows and almost overnight Marley became a kind of superstar. I mean, that's being very simplistic about it. But it's fascinating to me that Carl spoke to him the morning after. And, uh, <laughs> and, and as I said, it's a great piece. And we've actually got, believe it or not, audio of that interview on Rock's Black Pages. Wow. And we are going to hear Bob talking about the song, I Shot the Sheriff, which is on the live album, and of which, of course, Eric Clapton had had a, a sort of unlikely hit with the previous year. So if we could just hear that, Jasper.
3: A lot of your songs have a very obvious message, but uh, one of the, the most popular, uh, I Shot the Sheriff, uh, that doesn't seem to have any message.
5: <laughs> yes, that message, but you know, that a kind of diplomatic statement. Yeah? Yeah, you have a kind of suss things out. I Shot the Sheriff is like I Shot Wickedness because all around in my hometown they're trying to track me down sheriff john brown don't like me for what i don't know No, every time i plant a seed he, he, he say kill them before they grow you know what i mean no the sheriff don't like me if what me don't know and every time i plant a seed he say kill it before it grows
2: Great stuff. It's great stuff. I saw him the following year. I saw him in '76 at Hammer Smith Odeon. It wasn't. I didn't think it was great. He had mm. a he had a guitar player who was like throwing rock guitarist shapes all over the stage, which sort of just felt out of keeping with the. The, 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 the I3s being statuesque and uh, elegant and marvellous. You know, I mean, a lot of that was great. I mean, the, the rhythm section, the Barrett's just astonishingly good. And he was a fairly mesmerising performer. I was down at the front taking photographs and this, this raster was on my back feeding me a spliff. And unfortunately, <laughs> all, 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 um, uh, unfortunately, back in the stalls, all my friends were having their handbags and cash extracted from them by uh, a slightly... Slightly difficult to watch members of the audience. It was a, it was a it was a mixed experience, but I was a huge fan. I I, I loved Natty Dread, but then I went off him fairly rapidly afterwards. I, his, his the after Exodus, I, I found the music got sweeter and sweeter and just le- less interesting. But
0: Miles, in in your in your Kendrick book, mm-hmm. you there's a point where you talk about Lenny Kravitz turning you on to. Well, all sorts of things, including Led Zeppelin. But you also, I, you imply that it was Lenny Kravitz that turned you on to, to Bob Marley. I don't know if that's fair. Um, what was your no, intro? Not, I, to, what was your intro to Marley and the Whalers? Uh,
1: wow. I just them being on the radio. You know, even okay. before Marley died. I mean, uh, in particular, I remember probably Jammin' was the first song that uh, that stuck with me you know and i I was a kid riding in the back seat of my my parents car and stuff like that and jamming would come on and i'll be like wow you know like turn this up like this is it's different you know i didn't understand really the difference between reggae rhythms and and the rest of the stuff on r&b but i knew that it wasn't quite the same and i enjoyed it and uh and grew to love him later uh just when i was exploring my own um my own musical tastes and and shopping for music on my own and stuff like that. I mean, uh, the thing about Lenny Kravitz was that uh, his early music was so derivative that journalists would inevitably ask him about his influences and ask him about the different musicians that they heard in his music, you know, like the Beatles and stuff. Uh, Let Love Rule sounds exactly like Hey Jude. And, you know, people would go on and on about that. And so since he was inevitably asked about other Artists, he would, you know, rattle them off like uh, the people he loved, and Marley was definitely one of them. But I guess I had already been heavily familiar with uh, with Legend, you know, with the with the greatest hits, let's say. And so it was it was probably Lenny who mentioned specific albums like Catch a Fire and Kaya. That you know, if yeah. he would mention them, I would go to the store immediately and buy those records. To hear Marley's musical statements like that you know in terms of of his uh, his album statements, you know because the greatest hits you know it's it's like a hodgepodge, you know, mm-hmm. but that was where the Kravis thing came in, but yeah, I mean, I loved him uh since since legend and even since since being a boy uh hearing jamming in the back seat of the car
0: okay, brilliant well, so this musical opens, I, I believe the previews are uh, like within the next sort of two weeks or so mm-hmm. i don't know anything about. The musical but i suppose it was inevitable that would there would be a major marley musical
1: i hope it's great i mean there was a phelan musical here that was yeah. fantastic and i hope uh, it approaches the same level of quality
0: yeah sure sure exactly we're sort of running out of time but we should really before we get to library highlights we need to say goodbye to well People obviously dropping like flies at the moment. It's quite hard to keep up with with the sort of rock and roll deaths that are happening every week. But Status Quo's co-founder and bass player, Alan Lancaster, died at the beginning of the week. And then shortly after that, the legendary Commander Cody died. And um, we've got two pieces just to sort of mark their passing, both from 1976 harry doherty interviewing status quo and actually asking all about their their formation as i think the specters is what they were first known as before they got on status quo and then mick brown mick brown's big piece about commander cody from street life magazine which is a which is a great piece mark i mean have you got much to say about either Status Quo. Well, Probably more about Commander Cody. Well, yeah,
2: well yes, no. I actually saw Status Quo live in, I think, 1974. I saw the first half of their set before I was dragged off to Mr. Chow's to have a row with my sister in front of the Support Act, Montrose. So that was a fairly memorable... And the thing is, actually, Drive was a pretty good Status Quo album. It's, 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 it's meat and potatoes boogie music, you know. But the brief bit I saw of them live that night, they were tight as fuck. They yes. were really impressive, you know. Yes, I mean, mm. and so they, they, they were pretty good. Yeah, Commander Cody, i was actually very fond of. I mean, smoke, smoke, smoke that cigarette and all those sorts of tunes. Uh, my introduction to Western Swing, which became something of a passion. Uh, yeah, it was basically kind of like Western Swing for dope smoking hippies. <laughs> <laughs> and,
0: and surely you weren't one of those?
2: Uh, absolutely not. No, <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: but, but uh,
2: very, 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 very fond of Commander Cody. Yeah,
0: fantastic. The guys real name was george frayne f-r-a-y-n-e the fourth to give him his his proper name (laughs) the one on his birth certificate i mean i commander cody and his lost planet airmen to give them their full title um i i always loved the name of the band there's a great thing about how when they
2: would actually play to country audiences country audiences hated them of course their hair hair was far too long you know
0: yeah yeah
5: exactly (laughs) yeah (laughs) Smoke, smoke, smoke that cigarette. Pop, 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 and if you pop yourself today, tell Saint Peter at uh, the golden uh, gate that you just uh, hate to make him uh, wait. But you just gotta have, have another cigarette. cigarette.
0: So we're saying goodbye to them, and it's at this point to ask you, Mark, to tell us about some of the pieces that you've put into the library of the last two weeks. And and Miles, if any name just prompts a thought or opinion, do just jump in and offer it. Sure. So, Mark.
2: Right. The first piece is one of our writers interviewing another one of our writers. This is Max Max Jones interviewing Robert Shelton for The Melody Maker in 1966 on Bob Dylan. As we've spoken about before in this podcast, Shelton was very important to Dylan's career, but also was a man who loved his change to electric music and so on. And he says he had that magic star quality even then. You couldn't take your eyes off him when he was on stage. So it was all, always there was, there was a feeling of slight detachment, as if you were watching the scene with amusement. It's just it's very nice. I mean, Max Jones was a very early promoter of Bob Dylan in this country as well. So that's something that yes. they, they had in common. Next yes. piece is really interesting. It's Lillian Roxon for Sydney Morning Herald talking about the Manson murders in November 1969. This is a month before Manson was arrested, so no one knew you had done it at this stage. And she goes through... All the possible things that could have been a drug deal that went wrong, blah blah blah. And she sums up it in she says, "Magic sounds bizarre, very bizarre in Australia, but not in Hollywood or anywhere in California for that matter. Drugs in California, if you don't partake, you don't admit it. Ambition—it's what makes Hollywood work. Any one of these could have been the motive, and none of them contradict what a weeping Polanski said about his wife, namely, that she's just a normal, healthy, ordinary California girl." If the police are going crazy, it's because there are so many amateur mag- magicians, so many drug dealers, so many ambitious unknowns. And in a town where people are urged to marry in a cemetery, just how bizarre can a mass murder seem? I mean, it's just interesting. It's, it's, it gets this sense of people absolutely in shock after the Manson murders in, in California. Let me see. Oh, yes. It's great. Roy Carr paying tribute to Blue Note Records in 1985. And Art, he talks about Blakey. And Art Blake says, Blue Note, that was different. Musicians are proud to record for a company like that. Proud is really something to have your name on a Blue Note record. And then he says about how his band rotates, keeps changing, because his sidemen, like Winton Marsalis, go on to become stars. He says, they don't quit the messages. I fire them. Nobody comes in my band as star. It's really nice great uh, <laughs> <Fabulous>. <laughs> yeah no it's great i'm'm I'm, I'm a big art Blakey fan I must say you know it's, it's yes. wonderful stuff yeah <laughs> Loosely going this week. One is a a fairly short Richard York interview with Ronnie Hawkins, where it turns out that Ronnie Hawkins getting signed to Warner Brothers had really put the band's noses out of joint and and put Barney, remind me, Dylan's manager. um, Albert Grossman.
5: Grossman. Albert, Albert
2: Grossman. They were all really cross that he would got his own deal without sort of somehow referencing them or the Grossman circle. He says, I thought the only thing they could complain about was my exaggerating about the length of Levon's Peter. But never mind. I didn't exaggerate too much. It's, I always love reading interviews with Ronnie Hawkins. He's 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 very. It good got buddy. him
0: in, I remember him telling me that that interview got him in terrible trouble. Did the it? Same, yeah, yeah. If Marsalis's interview got him in hot water, this got Ronnie in very very hot water. I think it's the back. previous.
2: I think it's the previous interview that Richard York had done with him got him into the hot water, and now he's sort of this interview. He's sort of talking about. I'm in the hot okay. water now. Yeah, yeah. Well, any mention
0: of 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 <laughs> woman here, Peter, uh, uh, as he calls it, was was not welcome in the sort of hallowed cloistral world of Bearsville, where they were all supposed to be these these very very sort of pure mountain men who hadn't misbehaved. Anyway, <laughs> it, it, he was almost excommunicated.
2: Yes, clearly. The second thing is San Francisco Examiner, um, February 1970, where. Philip Elwood sees both the band and Credence Clearwater playing separate gigs on the same night. He sees the band at Berkeley Community Theatre, Credence Clearwater at the Oakland Coliseum Arena. Now, Oakland and Berkeley are next door to one another, so this is feasible. And he sees the the band's first set. The band play two sets. He sees the first set, goes see Credence and come back and sees the last 45 minutes of the band, which is some night. He says, mm-hmm. The band often does not quite accomplish what they set out to do, and they have some pretty abrupt shifts in mood and taste. Credence has an instant effect, a projection of unqualified competence. Over the long haul, however, the band may leave more of a permanent substance with us all. Both groups are a tribute to American popular music of the last few years, which is pretty good, I think. 1977 melody maker Michael Watts goes in search of Iggy Pop. First of all, he has a sort of 15-minute phone interview with him which is okay but then he goes to berlin to track him and david bowie down who are both working there at the time he says late friday afternoon when i arrived there were final rehearsals this is rehearsals where 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 iggy's band live band which included david bowie this is for the idiot we're about to go on tour i arrived their final rehearsals just finished and teams of roaders were loading equipment ready for transportation the following day to england there's no sign of bowie or iggy they've been they've both been tipped off but on a dressing room door there was a crudely lettered sign, Iggy's Idiot Lounge. There was another piece of paper waiting for me when I got back to the Hotel Gerhus much later that night. The desk clerk handed me an envelope. Inside was a note that read, See you in London. Enjoy the shows. Regards, Iggy. Bastard. (laughs) The very last word of the interview, bastard. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, (laughs) uh, I'll keep it short. I'm 1995, Caitlin Moran on Take That in the Times. She says, reports of teen hysteria at pop concerts lead to believe that the air is thick and clouded with the aroma of womankind on heat. A misty, muggy, fruitfully expectant brothel haze, delirium-induced and inducing. What it actually smells of is a bed and mattress mattresses and babies' nappies. It's disgusting.
4: <laughs>
0: well, that's so, evocative that's writing him. there. <laughs> <laughs> That's my lot. Is that your lot, Pringle? I'll yes. mention one piece, um, partly because it introduces a new writer to Rock's Back Pages, a guy called Mark Rozzo who, who writes for Vanity Fair, but wrote pieces mm. for the Oxford American and Los Angeles wow. Review of Books and so forth. So we have got underway with him by adding a piece he wrote for the Oxford American in 2006 about Big Star's third album, which he describes very well and talks to Jim Dickinson and- and Jody Stevens about. He calls it uh, a musical amoeba that keeps changing shape and meaning depending on who's, do- on who's doing the listening, downloading or plucking of chords on a deserted Memphis levee. It remains the ultimate cult album in rock and roll. Jasper, what about you?
3: I've got three things to briefly mention, the first of which is an interview with Gorillas, Damon Albarn and Jamie Hewlett. Mm. But Pete Perfides in The Times also speaks to Bobby Womack, who we all love at uh, Rocksback Pages. who's oh, yes. obviously on Stylo on that Gorilla's album, yeah. I think. He's very sweet. My daughter is 23. She loves me, but she's never reacted to what I do the way she reacted to that track. Sweetly, he, he seems intent on referring to the group in the singular. Here I am thinking that I'm hip, and I'm saying, I ain't never heard of Gorilla. And it's, just, <laughs> it's, it's just nice. I spoke to them on the phone, and they were like, come on, we heard of you, though. I, I like that. <laughs> Then I added this week our very first review of John Coltrane's A Love Supreme to the site, and that's David Toop in The Wire, and it's just really nicely written. What happens in the music happens very fast, tightly meshed, Coltrane in particular rushing at the bar lines as if in the knowledge that death waited for the saxophone to be still. McCoy Tyner's hammered chords spawn mutations of themselves, endlessly ascending, driven and pursued by Coltrane with a density and intensity that is exhilarating yet oppressive, ultimately the enactment of a right, both solemn and ecstatic. And I just think it's great. I mean, I love Supreme is just one of those albums that I was curious. We were talking yesterday about what reviews when it came out would have said, because looking back Mm. on it, everyone can kind of see that it had this incredible influence and what, what an amazing record it was. But I wonder, I wonder what, the, the, you know, when Downbeat reviewed it, what they said about it in 64,
2: yeah. really. In um, I just found a review. Mm-hmm. I found a review by Mike Davenport in, which, what newspaper is, this? the Valley News Van Nuys, California. <laughs> this is probably the most unusual album John Coltrane has yet recorded. It's not unusual from a musical standpoint, however, but in relation to the manner of its conception. In essence, it is one composition divided into four parts. It's written by John Coltrane and is offered by him as, Tideum, that is, a praise to God. It is according to his own liner notes, an attempt to say thank you, God, through music. The four parts are titled Acknowledgement, Resolution, Pursuance, and Psalm. All are blues-orientated. The first three gradually build in tempo and intensity, and the fourth is exceedingly slow, and so on and so forth. So how does it? it the album says a great deal about John Coltrane's personality and is very worthwhile having. So there, well, there you that, go. There is a contemporaneous review. <laughs>
3: nice. Well, thanks for that, Mark. No, I yeah. I, I think that's a fascinating album and I think that he really kind of announced himself as someone that was gonna, you know, that, that wanted to go elsewhere with jazz at quite an early time and then went very free to in a way that Winton probably
0: wouldn't approve of, but there you go. <laughs> yeah. What and, and and nice that Kendrick mentioned it to you in yeah. your interview with him, Miles. Definitely. Yeah, I was
1: curious as to what he thought of it and, and what he thought of other jazz music, considering that he hadn't really been exposed to it coming up. You know, it was uh, something yeah. that happened in the studio with, with him and Kamasi Washington and the rest of them sort of giving, uh, exposing him to that that kind of music.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, the last thing, just to bring
3: things full circle, I also added a piece by you this week, Miles. The Get Down Proves Why the Bronx Will Always Matter that you wrote for The Fader in 2016. Ah. And I really enjoyed I really enjoyed that. I've only seen the first episode of the get down. I need to get round to watching the rest of it. But you write it's a great So you know that rock? Baz Lerman asked me last month, referencing the huge slab of slate Shaolin Fantastic slides down and spray paints in St. Mary's Park near the end of episode one. Yes, Baz, that rock has got to be full of psychic imprints from my childhood self when I toyed around with micronauts and space nineteen ninety nine spaceships. Does the get down properly reflect my youth? Is it a true and accurate depiction of that time? What would you say, Miles? How do you feel about it still? <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, it's it's romanticized, you know. Mm, yeah, it, as well it should be. I mean, uh, yeah. I think of uh, stuff like Almost Famous and, and different period pieces from Hollywood uh, of the nineteen seventies and and nineteen uh, yeah. sixties and previous time periods and stuff. The nineteen seventies South Bronx certainly deserves the same, you know, romantic treatment. <laughs> as uh, the rest of those eras. So, I mean, you know, it's it's partially accurate, sure, you know, but they got a lot of details right, though. It, it is it is actually, it, it's just, it's a cool series. You know, I, I imagine it's still on Netflix. You know, yeah. Boslerman's uh The Get Down, um, which had a lot of input from DJ Grandmaster Flash and uh, from Nelson George, actually, who was uh, mm-hmm. affiliated with it. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I'm fascinated. I, mean, I curated an exhibition in London uh, a few years back about precisely that that period of the birth of birth of hip hop, and I'm fascinated okay. by it. And I, I struggle the problem is it's almost too much Baz Luhrmann, <laughs> the Get Down. It's so <laughs> it, you, you know, it's it, it's it's got all his. Almost sort of, yeah, exactly.
3: of, You know his visual tropes and yeah, yeah. yeah. And <laughs> it is it is right. fun though. Like it is it is entertaining sure, and it like is, uh, yeah. yeah.
0: A little buzz, <laughs> goes a long way. I think uh, me, anyway. This is cool. We, we uh, thanks Jasper for those. We need to wrap up and by thanking uh, finally, you swiftly, yes. swiftly before
2: you do that, we were talking about yeah. this before the podcast started. But uh, I was watching this marvelous documentary, "The Summer of Soul," which came out very very recently. Oh, yeah And as guy in it saying you know i used to be a suit and tie guy and then i saw sly stone and you know out when the suit and tie and that's your your father miles so
1: i'm told it's yeah, very true <laughs> yes indeed uh daryl lewis he does appear in uh quest love's uh first directorial debut uh, summer of soul about the famous harlem concert of uh 1969
0: 1960- i believe Nine, i think
1: 1969 yeah. uh It took place maybe six months before Woodstock and features uh, Sly and the Family Stone, as Woodstock does, along with Nina Simone and uh, Mahalia Jackson and a whole bunch of other people. But, yeah, my father, at 70 years old, uh, is a talking head in the film because he (laughs) he attended the concert when he was 19 years old and has a lot to say about it, you know, as as much to say about it as he's had uh, to say to me about it since I was, you know, 10 years old.
2: <laughs> Fantastic! <laughs> great, He's a suit and tie guy. Yeah,
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, that was his line yeah. <laughs> that everyone loves.
0: That's that's a very nice way to to end the episode. So it just remains for us to thank you so much for yeah. joining us today, Miles. Thanks very of much. Of course,
1: no, this was very fun. Well, yeah. I hope so. I
0: hope so. And and we 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 wish you the very best of success with the Kendrick Lamar book. Which to just remind listeners is entitled Promise That You Will Sing About Me. And I think the subtitle is The Power and Poetry of Kendrick Lamar. Of Kendrick Lamar, exactly. It's uh, out now, it. yeah, so and it's, go buy it. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's tremendous. It yes. is <laughs> out now. It is out now. I don't know. Yes. I, I mean, I say out now, I, I don't know if that just means the US or whether it's coming out here or what, but it is available.
1: It is definitely coming out there. I am not sure of the release date there, okay. but I would hope that it's also out there. I'm not clear.
0: Oh well great Mark. Certainly um,
1: electronically if you want to get the audiobook or yeah, exactly. the ebook that's available. Yeah. Wonderful. Fantastic. Well terrific.
0: And 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 so we'll be back in two weeks with Mr. Paul Morley of NME Fame to talk about Tony Wilson and Factory Records and other things. But Mark could you just talk us out with the third and final Winton Marsalis audio clip?
2: Yeah, it's about impact versus being a
0: spokesman. So it's really interesting. Brilliant. Well, goodbye and see you soon. And thank you, Miles. Bye. 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 Take care.
5: Sometimes I've heard people say that your impact, your musical impact, has been has been more as a spokesman than as the the creator of a musical statement. Mm-hmm. If you've ever, when you hear that, if you have, do you, what do you feel that they're missing? I, I don't feel they're missing missing anything. I agree with that. I, I think that my real impact as a musician has been negligible because my my music is not really a. I don't I don't think that it is I don't I don't feel it really reflected in that many of the younger musicians.
3: That was Winton Marsalis in conversation with Tony Sherman in 1996, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Miles Marshall-Lewis. Find him online at mmlunlimited.com. Promise That You Will Sing About Me, The Power and Poetry of Kendrick Lamar, is available now from all good bookshops. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper, Muris, and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com.